Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Seplad Pod. I'm Simon Mabin, and today I'm joined by someone I've been trying to get on the podcast for a long time. And finally, our diaries have permitted us to meet, albeit remotely. I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Professor Anoush Etashami. Anoush is the Nasser al-Muhammad al-Sabah Chair in International Relations at the University of Durham. He's Professor of International Relations in the School of Government and International Affairs, and he is the Director of the Institute for Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies. He's published extensively on a whole range of issues pertaining to Iranian politics, Middle Eastern politics, and everything in between. He's also one of the first people that I read when I started out on my PhD many moons ago. So I'm really, really delighted and very much looking forward to this conversation. Anoush, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Simon, it is an honor and a pleasure to be with you. I've listened to your podcast enviously, uh, <laughs> and I'm glad I'm glad to, to be able to be ticked off on the list because I'll be joining a very distinguished group of people who, who who have enjoyed talking with you, Simon. So it is a is a pleasure entirely for me. Well, you're a gent and incredibly kind as always, and uh, it's great to to have you alongside some of your your Durham colleagues as well. So very much looking forward to this. Um, Anush, as always, I I must begin with the question of of what got you interested in in the politics of the region and and the academy more broadly, please. Uh, gladly, Sammy. So there are two phases to this. The first phase was the start of the Iranian Revolution. I was at that time going through uh, finishing um, uh, school and then entering university. And I went to university in 1979, which was, of course, the dawn of the Islamic Republic. And at university, I found myself absolutely overwhelmed by all these political currents that were about. Um, a, a huge array of Marxist-Leninist, radical leftists, uh, you know, ethnic groups, Kurdish, Azeris, and so on, as well as uh, the Islamists and the secularists. And I found myself kind of trying to keep my head above this wave that we're coming, going to seminars, people coming from all over the place to speak and picking up the literature that was been, been, been generated by all these people. And, you know, that kind of, it, it, it made a very strong first impression on me. I can I imagine, also, yeah. Also went to Iran um, after the success of the revolution at a very early period that the war had started and and it, it was again a transformative experience to be there in the in the throes of revolution but also a still kind of um, unsure regime trying to to fight an interstate war in, in more or less complete isolation it, it didn't really feature in my studies I was studying a bachelor of uh, social uh, uh, BA in social sciences, so I was caught up in 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 political theory, political economy, international relations, psychology, sociology, and such like, philosophy, and so on. Um, and in my studies, I was much more interested in those currents than focusing on on the region 
or on Iran. So it kind of stayed in the background until I started my PhD at Exeter um, doing comparative study of Brazil, South Korea and Iran as semi-peripheral states mm -hmm. emerging out of the international system. So I was very interested in combining international relations with international political economy, which had been part of my dissertation that I'd done for my bachelor's degree on globalization and the global south. And I was in the politics department at Exeter, but Exeter had a very uh, large and an important Middle East politics program headed by Professor Niblock and the late Nazir Ayubi, and also a very active Persian Gulf uh, Studies Documentation Unit. Uh, I was employed as tutor in international politics from early on, which helped me pay my way uh, for my PhD uh, as well. And so I, I found myself, again, at the heart of fascinating debates about the region. And we covered the politics, the political economy, as well as the international relations of the region in great depth. And as a tutor in international politics, I was then becoming more and more privy to those discussions. The Gulf Studies Unit helped reignite my interest in Iran and also the wider Persian Gulf. And so in the 80s, while I was doing my PhD, we had the annual Gulf Conference, for example, at Exeter. I was interacting with fascinating, interesting people, some of whom have sadly uh, passed away, but many of them are now account as friends uh, dotted around the world. And from there on, Simon, the interest stuck. And, and I've not been able to shake it off. <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, that's such a rich exposure to, to, to politics, political theory, a whole host of different disciplinary uh, approaches. Did you, did you always know that you wanted to, to go down the academic route? Is it something that you, you sort of were aware of when you were doing your bachelor's degree or is it something that you, you more sort of fell into by accident? Uh, I think um, inquiry, for want of a better word, mm -hmm. I think was kind of ignited in me by some of my tutors. Um, it, it, it's very easy when we sit on this side of the table not to be conscious of the impact that we make on young minds, Simon. And yeah. in my experience, three of my tutors had a transformative effect on me. Um, and they did it in the most constructive, positive way. And they, they, they didn't necessarily encourage me to do graduate study, but they encouraged me to, to explore things. So the support I got for my dissertation, for example, was tremendous from these guys. Um, and, and, you know, as most graduates do, you kind of leave university and you think, what am I going to do now? Um, and that was, of course, at the height of Thatcher's revolution, um, where much industry was being dismantled and the services sector, particularly the city of London, were, were being promoted um, by, by the government and so on. So, you know, given my interest in globalization, I looked at it and then I found it profoundly boring. Um, <laughs> I looked at other options. I very early on decided I wanted to do further research, further study rather. 
Um, and I looked at Imperial, Exeter and Boston University, all of which were very supportive and favorable. Uh, Imperial, I would have been part of an emerging management department, which now, of course, is a world-leading school of management that Imperial has. In those days, it was a basement uh, not too far from a couple of museums in that part <laughs> of London. Um, and, and they were interested in my project to continue my work on globalization uh, and the global south. Then I was invited to go to Exeter for interview for PhD. And I was taken to Exeter's staff club, uh, dined there and was then taken to the Department of Politics. And they had a postgraduate room named after the, the political theorist Hooker. And the Hooker room, this large space, was devoted to uh, postgraduates. And my host took me to the room, pointed to an empty desk in the corner, overlooking this beautiful uh, copse outside the window, and said, and of course, that would be your desk. And I looked at that, and I remembered the basement you know, in South Kensington. <laughs> yeah. And the prospect, of course, of being able to become a tutor from very early on in my PhD. And it, it proved to be a no-brainer. So I packed my bag and then went to Exeter, something that I've never regretted. Fantastic. Can I just take you back? You mentioned uh, a number of tutors that had this this transformative impact on your um, your approach. Can I ask who they were, please, Anushin? Uh, the one that is m most um, kind of in my mind's eye is Dr. Larry Wilde, who was an unassuming tutor of, of political theory uh, and, and politics. And he's the one who got me interested in particularly um, what is now known as radical political economy their dependency school and so on. Mm -hmm. um, there were many others, Simon, but Larry's the one that, that, that is always at the forefront of my mind. Right. Okay. That's, that's really interesting to know. And I think it's, it's such a good reminder that, that we do have an impact on people and their, their engagement with, with a number of different, sort of intellectual projects, be it the theoretical or the, the empirical. So thank you for that that reminder. So this this trip to Exeter then and and your ensuing PhD, you're looking at, at globalization and Iran, uh, South Korea and and Brazil. What happens after that? Because you don't go down the 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 broader um more conceptual international political economy route. You you start to double down on on the Middle East, albeit with a number of of uh, perhaps outliers is the wrong word, but uh, a number of contributions to those broader debates. So, how do you get pulled into the 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 region in particular, rather than the the broader currents of IPE? Uh, so, um, with Nazir Yubi, he and I. Uh, managed to be invited to go to one of the ECPR uh, meetings uh, in Bochum in Germany, which was, in fact, directed by one of your colleagues at, at Lancaster, 
who who was a, a major Africanist and development studies person. So that was, if you like, one way of getting me into this, where Nazi and I had to prepare for the workshop. We were there in those days. You had to be there for five days, which which uh, did. But also after that, Nazi got another fellowship fellowship to go to um, to uh, European Institute um, yeah. in Italy, mm-hmm. and I was then I was then employed to cover his teaching, which was political economy of the Middle East, and 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 that was transformative. And the I did it, the deeper I got into it, and also at the same time, the Gulf Studies Unit, with which I was also involved, were showing a lot of interest in the politics and international relations of Iran. So increasingly, Brazil and South Korea became more of an interest rather than a pursuit. Right, okay. And Iran then became my my objective. And the department was very supportive in 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 my retooling and shifting my focus from the comparative work to looking at at Iran as a state. Um and so that became the core and then I was able to use the tools that I'd now acquired as a lecturer as well as, as tutor uh in the politics department with the the resources that we had at our disposal at Exeter to then pursue the the PhD objective uh by looking at, at Iran. And the PhD was then completed and what followed was the book which is called uh, after Khomeini, the Iran and Second Republic, that came out, I think, in 1995. Uh, that was my my second um, authored authored book, and that time, and I think, then I became past dependent, if you like, uh, sure. okay. and, and, and pursuit of Iran remained a, a a permanent feature of my work since. Got you. Uh, that book is is spectacular and i i read it uh very very closely during my my phd and, and learned a great deal from it so uh so thank you this this path dependency is 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 really interesting and you you go down um a number of different avenues with regard to iran and and gulf politics and and security um one of the things that that I've I've really taken out of you, of your work out of your career is is the stuff that you did with with Ray Ray Hinnebush. Um, there's there's two things in particular that I wanted to touch on. There's the the book that you did on Syria and Iran, um, middle powers in a penetrated regional system, and then the the foreign policies of of Middle Eastern states. So that. The Syria and Iran book. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Because you're dealing with this really complex relationship that got a lot of attention, what, a, a decade or so later, and the concept of middle powers, which again got a lot of attention about 15 years after you'd done it. So you're ahead of the curve with these two um, conceptual and empirical sets of issues. So can you tell us a bit about what you're doing in, in the book, please, with, with Ray? 
uh, with pleasure. So uh, Ray, uh, our path crossed when Ray had come to Exeter uh, for a conference and stayed for a bit uh, to do some research. And that was before I'd, I'd, I'd uh, moved to Durham. And he and I agreed then that, that we would like to bring our respective interests in Iran and Syria a bit closer because I was an admirer of Ray's work before I'd met him, uh, having, having studied his work on Syria and having taught it, in fact. So when he came over to Exeter, it was a revelation for me um, to have him in person. And when I moved to Durham, Ray was also thinking about moving to UK. He so loved the UK, having been here um, for, for our activities in Exeter. And, and he and I agreed uh, to apply for a USIP, United States Institute of Peace mm-hmm. grant, to do work on, on, on Iran and Syria. And lo and behold, we got it. And Amazing. that funding that told Ray to come to Durham, uh, to stay in Durham um, for, I think, over a year, it facilitated us traveling to Syria and taking a couple of students with us our PhD students as well to travel in Syria, to talk with people in Syria, to go to the Iranian embassy in Damascus, oddly enough, both he and I, um, to talk to them and so on. And remember, as you said, this is very early on where people were not actually that focused on this relationship. Yeah. And we found they were very open in talking to us. And we stayed um, near the French Institute in Damascus. So we interacted with Again, a whole group of people who were interested in, in, in domestic Syrian uh, affairs and Syrian politics. And at that time, Syria itself was beginning to go through change, uh, you, you will recall. So when and, was and this in a short interrupt? This, this, this was um, 93, 94, I think. Right, okay. 94, 95, thereabouts. The book came out, I think, in '97. Yeah. So, so, so we already had, on the basis of our grant application, a clear idea of what it is that we wanted to do, and we had both agreed that Iran and Syria. Remember that was well before the region was becoming fragmented and mm-hmm. the Arab region was falling apart. That Syria was still a very prominent uh, actor in the region very influential as it happened. And Iran was this this emerging actor post Iran Rock War. And I began to articulate, as I done in the in the After Khomeini book, uh, to talk about Iran moving from a regional actor to becoming a regional power. So we'd read our 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 respective work and began to see this convergence around the idea of Syria and Iran being regional powers. Indeed, as we go to define in the book, uh, middle powers uh, as well. And also we both experienced what penetration region really means in terms of Ray's earlier work on Egypt uh, and my work on Iran, where it was clear that, uh, that these two countries are exposed to pressures well beyond their control. And that this region, above many others, actually, and the only other place would probably be Southeast Asia, uh, was exposed to profound pressures 
that not only shaped the behavior of its modern state, but actually created the contours of the region in which these modern states operated. Hence, our notions of a penetrated regional system. And we put the two together and started to explore what it means for these regional powers to swim in these currents, but also what it means for them to converge. Because this was the most peculiar marriage mm. where an Islamic revolution, Islamist regime, partnering a secular, secularist Arab nationalist regime. Uh, the narratives of neither really uh, prepared us, the world, for that kind of partnership, which, as you see, has stuck to this day. Yeah. I use this book a lot in, in my recent uh, slash forthcoming book, which looks at the Saudis and the Iranians and how that rivalry plays out across the region, including in Syria. And so this, this book was invaluable for me in, in trying to understand the historical dimensions of some of these things. But I, I wonder, as we're approaching sort of the, the, the 20th anniversary of you going to Syria and looking at these things, how do you think that, that those ideas have, um, have stood the test of time? I think that there's, there's a lot of merit in what you were arguing, but is there anything that you think needs to be revisited in, in what you've been saying there? I, I think in te- our, our, our description of the region as being basically a basket case remains <laughs> intact. If you look at it, yeah. if anything, you know, the Arab uprising have shown the vulnerabilities of the region, but also the ways in which external powers, it doesn't matter what the political colors are, penetrate and, and then maneuver and then influence the region. Russia is the latest play in that regard, particularly when it comes to Syria. But also, we now see it with regard to Iran as well, in Libya, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, that has a direct impact on the region, of course, and so on. So the region, if anything, has become our, our, our analysis of the penetration of the regional system by external powers has proven to be right. And that, if anything, uh, you know, we might have underestimated it uh, in our book. Mm. But, but, but the role of the middle powers is not a fixed point in time or space. We have seen, as a consequence of profound domestic changes in Syria itself, post 9-11, that Syria has lost the gloss on its regional influence. That, if anything... It has lent itself to becoming a battleground for state and non-state actors, for all sorts of crackpot uh, 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 minor actors as well. And that is not a Syria that Hafsal Assad, for example, would recognize. Far from it. Same goes, of course, for Iraq, which, while... Syria's nemesis at the time that we were working on our book um, was nevertheless a very powerful Arab actor in the Persian Gulf, but also beyond. Um, And Iraq too has diminished to becoming what Americans would call a lemon state. No central authority, no cohesion structurally, 
and and basically bereft of that centralizing authority. I'm not saying that, you know, Ba'athism was a good thing. What I'm saying is Iraq, as this powerful regional actor, uh, has also diminished. So we need to take with a, with a degree of caution the definition of, of middle powers because it is transitional. And it's in that sense, I guess, that more political economy interests come in because in political economy, in radical IP in particular, there is an assumption that middle powers, what they call semi-peripheral states, are live, live, live a paranoid existence. While they go up the hierarchy economically, they have to ensure that politically their base is solid. Some, like South Korea, transitioned from military dictatorship to democracy. In the Middle East region, Simon, we don't seem to find that, unfortunately. That, that actually the semi-peripheral status is rare and that the states are vulnerable and are unable to make that transition, as we've seen since 2011, to a pluralist, let's not call it democratic, a pluralist yeah. kind of policy. Uh, there are a few standing, Iran obviously standing, Israel is, and so on. Egypt of today, in my view, is not Egypt of Mubarak. And yet, we have smaller actors like Qatar, like the UAE, like Oman, like Kuwait, which in different ways have come to occupy some of the mantle of middle powers in the region and beyond it. And that is something that I certainly had not foreseen. Mm. That's that's really interesting to to hear your observations on that, and I think it's it's hard to to disagree with your your conclusions there. I want to build on that discussion about the work with Ray to to take you to um, your your edited collection with him titled "The Foreign Policies of Middle East of Middle Eastern States," which is I think a really fantastic collection of of essays that build on some of the ideas that, that you and Ray have explored in the in the book on Syria and Iran, but also obviously in in the in the formative discussions of of, of these early chapters. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were trying to do with this collection, which features some really, really strong chapters from incredibly well known scholars, including your very own Clive Jones, my uh, my erstwhile PhD supervisor? Uh, absolutely. Uh, thank you for your kind words about the, 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 the volume and then the second edition that we um, we put together as well. Uh, Ray and I had been keen admirers of uh, Korani and the Suki, mm-hmm. who pioneered study of, of regional foreign policies in, in their book, The Foreign Policies of Arab States. And they had a theoretical framework, but Ray and I were keen to make it for the Middle East states so that we get Iran and Turkey and Israel in there as well as the Arab states. That was one, one objective. And the other was maybe to put together our own theoretical framework. And instead of giving free reign to our contributors to get them together in, in an author's workshop, which we did, and and then give them a framework and then ask them to write the chapters 
in the context of the framework that we have provided. So that we provide, if you like, a, a intellectual theoretical coherence mm. that runs from the conceptual side of the book all the way through the case studies that that we had. And and you know, we, we went through quite a lot of um iterations of, of our framework. We discussed it uh, extensively. You know, while we want to make sure that there was flexibility, we were conscious that it might be a straitjacket for some of the contributors because would the framework apply to every case and so on? And, and so, so we had to iron out a lot of, a lot of uh, issues there in discussion with our contributors. And we did. And the end is, of course, the the the, the two books that we have, um, and and I'm glad that you say uh, you still use it. We hear that it's still on many a reading list, um, up and down the land and overseas, uh, and so you know we are delighted that it managed to stand the test of time, even though, as you know, empirical case studies have a habit of becoming outdated very quickly. That was something else we wanted to avoid. We wanted to provide a strong framework that would then continue to put in context the empirical chapters that our contributors had so ably put together. And I think you do a great job of, of doing that. Um, as I said with your, your earlier book on, on Iran, this was incredibly valuable in the in the formative days of my PhD and I continue to use it when I'm when I'm teaching these topics it's it's really a, a, a an intellectual tour de force I think in setting up ways of approaching the complexities of of the material and the ideational and how they interact within the context of this penetrated system and bringing together the the different disciplinary approaches from IPE to to the more traditional um, IR approaches so I think it's it's incredibly valuable as a text and it stands the test of time despite as you say the the evolution and the developments in the in the empirical cases so um, I, I think it's it's a testament to to the, the work that you and Ray did in this volume. I'm delighted to hear this, and I'm sure when Ray hears this, he'll also be equally chuffed about it. Uh, because, you know, the one thing that we want to leave behind is a, a trace. And if that book helps to be the tracer, then I think Ray and I have done a good job um, in setting up the, the discussions and also shining the light on ways that people can explore these issues, Simon. Well... I did mention this to Ray actually at uh, at Brismas when he was kind enough to give me uh, a, a new copy of the the updated version. Uh, my copies are, are rather heavily thumbed and uh, they have not perhaps stood the test of time as well as the arguments. So I was delighted to get a, a copy from Ray himself, um, which oh, was one. which was great. But the other thing that, that you've done, Anoush, and this is moving slightly away from the, the research side of things, but in terms of leaving your mark and, and leaving a trace, is if I am correct, and this is me clutching at a, a tweet from earlier this week, you have supervised to completion over 50 PhD students. 
I have. In fact, my most recent Jacobusita from Italy, a, a very capable uh, emerging scholar, was my 53rd, Simon. Well, a um, huge congratulations. I think that's an incredible achievement. And thank uh, you. something you should be very proud of. And this idea of, of providing support to, to PhD students and early career scholars is something that I think many, many people in the discipline will will very quickly hold up as one of your, your biggest contributions to the study of the region. So I, I just wanted to put that out there, Anush, and say a huge thank you and a huge congratulations for everything that you've done for the discipline there. You are very kind. That that really, really touches me very much, Simon. Thank you. It, it is one of pleasure. the great pleasures of the profession for me. I completely agree. I completely agree. It is a, a wonderful thing that we get to do there. But that also serves as a bit of a segue into some of your more recent um, areas of interest, notably China. And I wonder if you mm. could just tell us a little bit about where this interest in China came from, Anush, please. Right. How long have you got, Simon? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so let me take you back to the comparative PhD uh, project that I had when I went to Exeter. Sure. Um, at, so it was at one of our conferences when we were looking at um, the, after the war, after the, the Iran-Rock war and the Kuwait war uh, conference, and we started looking at wider regional issues, right? And at that, at that conference, this was in 1992, I think, the year before I left Exeter to come to Durham, uh, we were looking at the conference was called Global Interests in the Arab Gulf. And, and instead of doing the mainstream, I put forward a, a paper proposal that was going to look at the convergence of what are called the middle in the world economy. So again, this is my political economy roots and, and you know, the, the impressions that, that were made on me from my first degree coming to, to life uh, Simon, I was very interested into the 1990s in the ways in which the so-called newly industrializing countries of Asia and Latin America um, had changed, had grown, and how their energy dependency, because they followed the same exact model as Japan uh, of export subsidy industrialization that was very energy-intensive model of development, brought them face-to-face -face with the Persian Gulf countries. In ways, if you look at the data from pre-1972, was unexpected. Um, because oil was relatively cheap, but also the consumption of hydrocarbons, of oil, was relatively low. It's the... If you look at this in terms of an axis, it was their takeoff coincided, the takeoff of the NICs coincided with rapidly rising oil prices, mm. 73, 74 onwards, which meant that suddenly a huge chunk of these countries' export revenues 
were being recycled to oil exporters. Totally unexpected for them. And when I look, when I started looking at the data from the 70s onward and into the 80s, a pattern began to emerge, which showed that actually the middle layers of the world economy, these very cash-rich oil states in West Asia, and these very rapidly industrializing states in East Asia and also elsewhere in Latin America, were coming together. The exporters desperately needed to offset the expense of importing uh, oil at a higher price and started to bid for contracts in cash-rich countries like UAE, like Saudi Arabia, like Kuwait, uh, like Qatar and so on. And slowly but surely, you see in the, in, in, in the chapter that, that became the book from that conference that actually there is considerable convergence between the two ends of Asia. Mm. So I call this, um, the, you know, the convergence of the middle in the, in the world economy. In those days, Simon, China was nowhere to be found. My focus was on the Asian NICs and, and Japan as their predecessor, if you like, their past blazer. Uh, and, and that work has continued to this day. I'm still very interested in how these NICs have, have developed. But later, of course, and it's ironic because that book, I think, was published in 9293, which is when China becomes an importer of oil for the first time. And into the 2000s, I cannot help but be distracted in my mind's eye, by this resurgence of China as a major actor. A country that I'd been interested in earlier when I was looking at the history of the Persian Gulf relations with the outside world, because of, of course, China's involvement in the Dofar Rebellion in Oman in the 1970s, early 70s, mm-hmm. because of China's position on Yemen uh, a few years, pre- previous decades, and of course, because China and Iran were, were very interestingly developed re- diplomatic relations in 1971. So I was conscious of China as an actor, but China was still a secondary actor. It's in the 2000s that I begin to see that actually China is now, if you like, the third generation Asian power following Japan and the NICs. And it was inevitable given China's growing interest in energy, given its rising status in the international system, and my own interest in political economy, that I would have to turn to my attention to China and see what it's up to and what's happening. And that has now morphed into much bigger interest that I have in the shaping of Eurasia, which is part of an emerging project that I'm developing. I did ask you how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> you did, you did. And what's interesting is that it comes out of this this scholarly inquiry, this intellectual inquiry that that seems to have been really driving your your career ever since the the days of your undergraduate studies. It's very true. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, the fire in my belly was lit way back when. And I think that's that's fantastic. That is the best reason, I think, to do any type of research, to be driven by 
intellectual curiosity and to get a better understanding of how particular things play out. Anoush, we could keep talking for hours about all of your wonderful work, but I'm conscious that we've been going for a very long time now. So all that remains for me to say is a huge thank you for your time just now. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking with you and I, I would love to pick it up again at some point and to discuss your new book on Iran and its security and the, the broader stuff that you've been doing on globalization in the Persian Gulf. So hopefully we can find a time to, to discuss those things in the not too distant future. But thank you so much for today. I've really enjoyed it. My pleasure. I can't wait to speak again, Simon. This is this is therapy, so it's wonderful <laughs> to have this, to discuss these issues with a with a uh, colleague and a friend as yourself um, to help me reflect uh, on my years and the work that I've done. And and I'm glad to be joining the ranks of all those who <laughs> have been privileged with you on this, Simon. So thank you very much. Fantastic. Thank you, Anush. A huge thank you to Anoush for his time just now. It's a real pleasure talking with him after reading his work for so long, for so many years. It's great to, to hear more about what was driving his scholarly inquiry. You can find him on Twitter at Anoush at the Shami. That's at Anoush at the Shami. So do give him a follow. And as always, a huge thank you to you for listening. Please do like, comment, share, subscribe, etc., etc., etc. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.